he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went on the mountain, up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out in the sea, and he was alone on the land. When he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them by walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Thus far, God's word. Now, kids, you, when you come to church, you hear the preacher preaching, and there's lots of times you don't understand everything that he is saying. That's fine. You will understand some things. In fact, you're going to understand the most important things. And so you will understand pretty easily today what happened in this story. This is a true story of what happened with Jesus. Jesus had just done a great miracle and fed more than 5,000 people. In fact, 5,000 families. He fed them all with just five loaves of bread and two fish. This incredible miracle that Jesus had just performed. And then after this, Jesus sends his disciples on a boat across the lake. It was a big lake and they called it a sea. He sends them by themselves across the lake. And while they're going across the lake, he goes up on the mountain and he's praying. While he's up on the mountain, he sees that they're having a very hard time getting across the sea. It should not have been a very long time to get across, but it was taking them a long time because of the wind. And so Jesus leaves the mountain. He's praying up on the mountain. He leaves, he goes down. And instead of swimming to them, instead of taking a boat to get to them, Instead of just meeting them on the other side, Jesus gets across the water by doing what? By walking on top of the water. And they see him walking on the water and they're terrified. They've never seen a man walking on the water. They're thinking, well, maybe it's a ghost. And of course, they've never seen a ghost before because ghosts don't exist. So they're terrified. And Jesus says, take heart. Do not be afraid. It is is I. And then Jesus gets in the boat and the wind stops and everything is incredibly calm. Jesus proved to them two things that day. And even if you can't understand everything in this sermon today, you can understand these two things. That day, Jesus proved to them that he was a man. That he was a man. He was a human just like you and me. He proved this by having to pray. He's up on the mountain. He's praying. He needed God's help, just like any human does. And if Jesus needed to pray, then you and I need to pray. He's showing us what does it look like to be a human who trusts in God. And so he proved that he was a human just like you and me. And he also proved that he was God. Because only God can walk on water. He proved that he was both God And that he was a man. And that is exactly what we needed for Jesus to be. Our rescuer needed to be both God 
and man. He needed to be a man because there was things that God gave men to do, humans to do, that we have failed to do. And Jesus came to do things that we couldn't do and for it to count as if we did it. But Jesus, our Messiah, our rescuer, also needed to be God because only God was holy enough and perfect enough and strong enough to make sure that we would get saved. Because sometimes we try to do things, but we fail. But God never just tries to do something. So if our rescuer was also God, not just man, but also God, that means he would not just try to save us, that he would for sure save us. I wonder if you were greatly encouraged by hearing our reading from Job today. Carl read from us Job 9. Was that a very encouraging passage for you to read? Or was it a little discouraging? Well, if the answer, you know the right answer is always, I'm encouraged by that. Well, that's the wrong answer, actually. That passage was meant to startle you. That passage is actually to put a little fear in you, right? One of the themes of that passage in Job's is, and Job was, you really have no argument when it comes to God. You've got no chance. If you're going face to face with God and you're going to argue with him, you've got no hope. Specifically, Job has in mind, and Jesus has in mind, two, two things. Two times when we might be tempted to think that we've got to argue with God. The first one is if we're going to argue to God and we're going to give a good reason that God should let us go to heaven. That God should, instead of sending us to hell, he should send us to heaven. That's the first one. We've got a good, if we're going to stand before God, I've got a good reason. I'm going to tell him why. I, not everybody should go to heaven, but I should. Here's why. I should be the one. And Job says, you've got nothing to offer God there. Because you are a sinner. So if you're going to say, God, you ought to send me to heaven, you get, you'll have nothing. Because you know that you are guilty. The second thing, the second thing that, that we have in mind here, that Job has in mind and that God has in mind when he says you have no argument, is what happens when bad things happen to you? What happens when a, a bad thing happens? Do you get to say, God, you shouldn't let this happen to me. You must stop it. What are you going to tell God? That you're smarter than him? That he should listen to you? Or what about when you're afraid that a bad thing might happen? When you're praying to God and you think a bad thing might happen, what could you tell God to say, you can't, you can't let that bad thing happen to me? And Job says, if we don't have somebody arguing for us, giving us an argument, we have no argument. And the good news is that we do have somebody who does make arguments for us, who does say, no, no, you do not have to be afraid. You can go to heaven, and you do not have to ha be afraid of when bad things happen to you. And that rescuer, that arbiter, that lawyer, had to be both God and man. And isn't that exactly what Jesus proved in this passage he was? Both God and man. Let's turn to our first point here. And the Messiah prays that he is human. That's our first point. The Messiah prays because he's human. 
We can see this very clearly in 45 and 46. Let's read that quickly. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Now, you might think, why in the world is Jesus having to pray? Praying is many things. It's praising God. But one of the things you're doing when you're praying is you're asking God for help. Why would Jesus, if he's God, ask God for help? Why would he need to do that? Was he just putting on a show like, I don't really need help, but I want to teach other people how to ask for help because they need help. No, actually, this is very important for us to realize. Jesus didn't come to be a superman, but to actually be a real man. The Bible says that Jesus was a human just like us. The only difference in Jesus being a human like you and me was that he had no sin. The author of Hebrews says he was like his brothers in every single way, except he had no sin. Jesus did what a perfect man would do. And that means to depend on God. Becoming human means that he took on the ability to need things. Before Jesus became a human, he never needed anything. In fact, he couldn't need things because he had all things. He was God. Now, it's not sinful to need things. It's not sinful to need food. It's not sinful to need air. It's not sinful to need water. In fact, that's how God made Adam and Eve. When God made Adam and Eve, he made them to be people who needed things. They, he gave them lungs that needed to receive oxygen. They needed to breathe so they can pump that oxygen into their blood and their blood could give all the oxygen to their body parts. They needed water. They needed enough heat. They needed food. They needed all these things. And when God created them and he said that they, he saw that all they, they needed these things, did God say, oh, I made a mistake. Everything else is good, but they need stuff. No, what did God say after he made humans? He saw them and he said it was very good. God sees it as very good. Not sinful. Very good that we need things. Things that he has made. And so it is perfectly human to live in a way that you realize, I need things and I'm going to ask God for them. This is part of being a human. And it would have been the way that Adam was a perfect human. To say, I need things, and I'm only going to trust God for things. I'm going to ask him for things, and I'm only going to take the things that he says that I need. But in fact, Adam didn't trust God, did he? The one thing God didn't give him, which was the tree of the knowledge of good of evil, that was the one thing he said, I think I need that. And so rather than trusting in God and asking God for things, he didn't do that. Now, Jesus came to be our substitute. A substitute means somebody who does something instead of you, and in fact, who does something instead of you, and it counts as if you did it. And so Jesus needed to live a regular human life. And a regular human life is one where we depend on God. And one of the ways that we show we depend on God is by praying. It's one of the ways that we enjoy God. 
We enjoy God by trusting him and, and asking him thing, for things, to glorify and enjoy God. And so Jesus replaces and he renews people who belong to him. What is certainly true is that every person in this room has not trusted God perfectly. What is certainly true is that we have not lived by prayer all the time. We failed in that respect, but Jesus didn't. But if you belong to Jesus, what he did counts as if you did it. Which is why Jesus, when he came to earth, he didn't become a crow. He didn't become an ox. He didn't become a worm. He became a human. So that he could do the human things that you and I were supposed to do. And have it count for us if we trust in him. And then he was punished for us not doing things. For our sin. So he, he was punished for what we do so that we could be rewarded for what he did. But Jesus also came to renew us. He didn't just come to, to forgive our sins. He also came to renew us, to fix what Adam broke. Where because we follow Adam, we don't trust God. We don't pray as we ought. But Jesus came to renew us, to recreate us. So now we have God's spirit in us if we trust in Jesus. And we will live according to how Jesus lived rather than how Adam lived, which means he helps us to pray. My guess is that you find it hard to pray from time to time. We all find it hard to pray from time to time. And this is why Jesus gives us his spirit to help us to pray. He renews us to be people who can pray and who God hears when we pray. Because we do not pray based on what we deserve, but we pray based on what Jesus deserves. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. Dear friends, if this is what Jesus needed, if when he was living as a human, he needed to pray, then don't you think it's true that we need to pray as well? And so we can learn from Jesus in this regard. Why do you think he prayed right in this moment? He prayed all the time. But the Bible doesn't tell us every single time Jesus prayed. Why do you think the Bible mentions this time when Jesus prayed? Well, we can think of some things that just happened. Jesus had just fed a whole bunch of people with five loaves of bread and two fish. And they responded. Do you know how they responded? Two ways. The first one is they're like, we're going to make you become king. We don't want you to die. You will not die for our sins. We're going to force you to become king. They did not want him to rescue them from their sins. And then when it was true, when it became very clear that Jesus came to die for their sins, they turned on him and they said, we don't want you. Do you think that was difficult for Jesus? And so he prays. The other reason, the other thing that we see in this passage Something is about to happen. Something very difficult for his disciples. Jesus had already sent them on that journey across the lake, and he knows it's going to be a very difficult journey. It was his idea that they go across the lake with them, and he knew that it was going to be a very difficult thing for them. 
right? The sea was going to be against them. They're going to be, they're going to be rowing against the sea and it's not going to work. And then, in the, and then in the middle of the night, they're going to see something that they're going to think is a ghost. Something very terrifying and difficult. And you know what Jesus does before that happens? Does he say, well, that's on them. I mean, if it's hard for them, that's just their deal. What does Jesus spend his time doing before that really difficult thing for his disciples? He prays for them. Jesus didn't just pray for himself. He prays for his disciples. Is that not an encouragement to you? Jesus is going to pick some very difficult things for you to go through. Every single one of you sitting here has either gone through some very difficult things, is going through some very difficult things right now, or will in the future go through some very difficult things. And Jesus picked those things for you. They're not going to be an accident. They're not because Jesus was pretty strong, but not strong enough to keep that from happening. No, these things were chosen. And Jesus is not sitting there in heaven saying, well, you know, that's my plan. Well, let just let that, hopefully they can deal with it. No, what is he doing in heaven? The Bible tells us that he is doing right now what he was doing on that mountain. The Bible says that he is praying for you and me right now. While we're in difficult situations and before them, he prays to prepare us for the difficult things that he has planned for us. Let's take a look at our next point, which is the Messiah walks on water because he's God. Our first point was that the Messiah prays because he's human. But our second point is the Messiah walks on water because he's God. Let's see this in 47 to 50. And we won't read the whole thing in 50. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were happy. No, terrified. Now, one of the things we've seen before is that Jesus' miracles are not just miracles. They are miracles. They're not just miracles. They are also parables. Why did Jesus choose this miracle? He could have done anything. He could have flown across the water. Could have, right? He's God. But he chose this miracle where he's going to walk on the water. And this is something that Jesus had planned. How do we know it was planned? Well, because it was his, it was his idea to send the disciples alone across. Remember, if you look at the beginning, verse 45. Take a look at verse 45. It says, immediately he made his disciples. So you get, this, you get this idea that they're like, we don't really want to go without you. And he's like, you will go without me. Okay, okay, Jesus. This is his idea. He set this whole thing up. Why did he do this? Kids, if, you, if your parents have read Bible stories with you, you know that there was a few times in the Old Testament where people walked across bodies of water and, Jesus, and, and, and God parted the water and they walked across on dry land. Remember, after the people were rescued from Egypt, God does this in the Red Sea. And the people of God walk across and Pharaoh tries to follow them and then the sea collapses on Pharaoh and he dies and his whole army. 
This also happened with Elijah. Remember that? Elijah crosses the Jordan River. He hits it with his robe. And across he goes. And actually, the people of Israel also crossed the Jordan River in the same way. So the people of God walked across bodies of water in the Old Testament, but the water always parted for them and they walked on dry ground. Do you know that the only person who walks on the water in the Bible in the Old Testament is God? I wonder, did you notice that in Job 9? Did you notice that? Let's go there. Did you notice that when uh, Carl was reading that, when Brother Carl was reading that, Mr. Clausen? Job 9, verse 8. Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Oh boy. God is not just walking through the water like the people did. He's walking on the water. Job 38, also in the same book, but Job 38, verse 16, says something very similar. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? And so Jesus was very clear here. This miracle was to show not just that he had God's power, like Moses and Elijah, but that he was God. I wonder if you also noticed in verse 48, look at the end of verse 48. Look at the end of verse 48. This is really wonderful. What did Jesus mean to do? He meant to do something. This is what he was trying to do. This is his goal. He meant to what? He meant to pass by them. That's a very interesting interesting thing for God to have said. Why 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 would the Bible tell us that Jesus meant to pass by them? It maybe doesn't make sense unless you've read the Old Testament a lot, unless you've read the Bible a lot. When God says, I am going to pass by you in the Old Testament. It means I'm going to show you my glory in a very terrifying way. I'm going to show some of my godness to you. Read along with me as I read in Exodus chapter 33. Read along, Exodus 33. You can find it at verse 17 or you can just hear along with me. Exodus 33 verse 17. You actually might remember this. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me that you will stand on the rock. While my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So that happened to Moses. You know what also happened to Elijah? 1 Kings 19, let's read it. 1 Kings 19, 9 to 18. 1 Kings 19, verse 9. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? 
And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. And they seek to take my life. They seek my life to take it away. You see, Elijah says, I think I'm the only Christian left in Israel. Everyone else has turned away from you. They killed all your prophets and they're trying to kill me. Verse 11. And God said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the, uh, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the fire was not in the, but the Lord is not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him saying, and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have t- forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life and take it away. And the Lord said to him, go return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shall an- uh, you shall anoint the king over Israel and Elisha, the son of Shaphat and Abel Meholah, shall you anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall put Jehu to de- uh, shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Listen to this, verse eighteen. Yet I will leave seven thousand in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So you have two examples where the people of Israel rejected God. Moses was very disappointed. And God comes to him and shows him his glory. He shows him his godness. Same thing happens with Elijah. So we know that when Jesus says he meant to pass by them, he is trying to show them his godness. The Messiah had to be a human. We've already seen that. Jesus had to be a human in order to live the life we should have lived and to die in our place. But the Messiah also had to be God. In fact, he started as God. He always was God, and he didn't stop being God when he became a man. He didn't give up his godness. He needed to be God because God alone must be our rescue. Our help must come from heaven. So that our worship for salvation would be to God. Because rescuers from earth always fail. Rescuers from earth always fail. Even if they love God. Even if they trust God. Our rescuers from earth always fail. But if our rescuer was also God. That would mean that our salvation is absolutely sure. Because it's not just God's idea. It's something that God himself does. Other religions will tell you, here's God's idea for how you can save yourself. Now go ahead and do it. But the problem is you're going to fail at all those instructions, even if they were the right instructions, and they're not. 
But even if they were the right instructions, you know, you're just a human. You're going to fail at those things. How wonderful it is that our salvation was something that God himself did. Because God doesn't just try to do things. You've tried to do things and failed, haven't you? God doesn't just try to do things. Everything God tries to do, he succeeds at. Now, you might think, well, this would make it easier for Jesus to live a human life. It must have been easier for Jesus to obey his parents. It must have been easier because, yes, he was a human, but he was also God. No. Jesus didn't rely on his godness in order to obey God's laws. Here's an illustration that I think is very helpful for this. Imagine that you had to run a marathon. You had to run a marathon that that lasted 24 hours. Imagine you had to do this. Except everybody else that's running the marathon, they could stop when they're tired. Okay? That's the only difference between you and everybody else running the marathon. They can stop whenever they get tired. But you can't stop even if you get tired. You cannot actually stop. Would it make it easier for you to run that marathon? It wouldn't make it easier. The only difference is that you cannot stop. Jesus was a human like us. That means it was just as hard for him to obey God. The only difference is he couldn't stop. He couldn't sin. So Jesus knows more than you and more than I what it is like for it to be difficult to live as a human. Being God didn't make it easier. It just made it impossible for him to fail. And that's why the Bible says that we have a sympathetic high priest, a sympathetic savior. That means when you are struggling with sin, when it is hard for you to turn away from sin, Jesus is up in heaven not saying, hey, I don't know why it's so hard. I was there and I did it. No, the Bible says he's sympathetic. He understands. He was a human just like you and me. And he knows how hard it is. And so he is sympathetic and he is eager to help you. Being sympathetic doesn't mean he's like, okay, it's no big deal. I know how hard it is. No, 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 no. He also knows how wicked it would be for you to sin. And so he doesn't give you permission to go ahead and sin. He promises to help you if you belong to him. The third point that we're going to look at today is no one can contend with God. None can contend with God. And we're going to get that from our Job passage. Because very clearly, God is showing himself to be the God of Job 9. Why is it that Jesus revealed his divinity to the disciples this way? That he meant to pass by? Why did he do that to Elijah? Why did he do that with Moses? What's going on with Job? Elijah, Moses, and Job are facing very difficult situations. If you were to ask them, probably all three of them would say, those are the most difficult moments in my life before God passed me by and showed he was God. In Job 9, verse 23, Job is speaking about God. Job is tempted to complain about all the bad things that are happening to him. Job had so many bad things happen to him all at once. You remember this, right? He lost his family. He lost his money. He lost his health. All these things at the same time. And Job was tempted to complain. But then he says, 
how could I complain? God made all things. He controls all things. I know I'm guilty. I can't talk to God and saying, look, I deserve better than this. Job says, look, if I'm going to stand face to face with God and have like a, a, a talking punching match, I know I'm going to lose. What am I going to say? God, what you're doing isn't very wise. And I know this because I'm smarter than you. Job's like, I can't do that. I know I'm not smarter than God. Job can't say, God, what you're doing isn't very kind. And I know this because I'm kinder than you. Or, God, what you're doing isn't very fair. And I know this because I'm fairer than you. Job, Job can't say any of these things. He would be helpless before God saying, I, all I can do is hope for the mercy of God. Hope that he will give me something better than I deserve. And so God revealed his glory to Job, to Moses, to Elijah, and to the disciples. To show them, you're right, you have no argument. You must simply rely on the mercy of God. You must rely on the promises of God. Dear friends, you have no contention against God. Some of you are doing that for eternal life. When you sin, you know it disobeys God's word, and you're like, look, I can make a really good argument against God for why his rule here is bad. He says I'm supposed to be uh, respectful to my parents but I have a good argument to make against him that I don't have to. Or to a husband, God says, you must be faithful sexually to your wife. Well, I know the Bible says that, but look, I, I know if I were to stand before God face to face, I'd make a really good argument with God and I'd probably beat him in that argument. Or who is God that he gets to make the rules? You know who God is that he gets to make the rules. Because he's the creator of everything and everyone. And he's better than you. So he makes good rules. He's perfect. He's wise. And so our plea before God is not that he must do good things for us. Or that he must be merciful. But that our hope is that he would be merciful. But dear friends, it is actually much better than that. Verse four, our, our, our fourth point is this. If Jesus is with you, take heart. Let's look at 50B and to 51. Let's read half of 50 and half of 51. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. Now, the disciples, when Jesus got in the boat and stopped the storm, how would you describe them? Happy, calm, or terrified? They're pretty terrified. Because they didn't realize it was Jesus. The power displayed by walking in the water was obviously greater than they could handle. They knew they were facing something supernatural. But the good news is that, yes, when you face God, when you're dealing with the God who controls all things, who controls the things in your life. He controls your future. He controls whether you will go to heaven or not. The good news, yes, he has that power, but that he is for you if you are in Christ. See, Job, Job said that without 
an arbiter. Without somebody else, he's hopeless. Doing some evangelism with some of the brothers in the church recently, one of the things that we notice, even people from other religions, when we ask them, how do you think you're going to get to heaven? Usually we can use the word of God to show them that they know that they are guilty. They know that if they're trying to get to heaven by their good works, they know that they would actually go to hell. And so some of them will just say, well, we just, we just hope that it's good enough. We just hope that God will be merciful to us. Dear friends, we have something much better than that. We have something much better than that. And that we have somebody whose life was so perfect that we know that we could stand before God and say, Jesus deserves to go to heaven. We know that Jesus gets, it deserves to go to heaven. We could look at his life and we know there for sure. Jesus wouldn't need anybody arguing, oh, please let him into heaven. He's not good enough. Because Jesus was perfect. And so rather than just hoping that God will let us into heaven, we can be confident. This is one of the greatest gifts of Christianity. That we don't have to hope that God will be merciful to us. We can have confidence. There's that old hymn, just as I am without one plea, except what? That Christ died for me. So when you stand before God and he asks you, why should I let you go into my heaven? And trust me, in that moment, when you stand before God at the end of your life, it will be what happened to the disciples and Moses and Elijah will be nothing compared to what you will be facing. No one who stands before God in judgment will argue with him. Not Satan, not the fiercest atheist. They will be dumbfounded and realize, I have no argument. God is holier and mightier and pow more powerful than I ever thought. And dear friends, you and I, if our faith is in Jesus... When he says, why should I let you into my heaven? We don't have to say, I don't know. I just hope you do. We don't have to do that. We have something much better. What can we do? That man was perfect. And he died for my sins. And so Jesus revealing his godness and his perfect humanness gives us something better than just we hope God will accept us. We know he will. because. Christ died for our sins. We can have confidence. And we wouldn't have this confidence if Jesus didn't first reveal how powerful and how perfect and how holy and how human he was. But dear friends, it doesn't just give us confidence for the next life. What really is the answer if we're afraid that bad things are going to happen to us? Could I stand here and tell you because you're a Christian, nothing bad's going to happen to you? Should you believe me if I say, don't worry, if you're a Christian, if you trust in Jesus, there will be no bad things that will happen to you in your life. Should you believe me if I say that? Shake your heads. You shouldn't believe me if I say that. But what can be your confidence? That the one who is in control of all things, the one who's in control of the waves, and the wind, and the cancer, and the cars, 
and the bad guys and the wars and the earthquakes and the tornadoes and the hurricanes and the snow. That one is your God. And he promises us that he will use all of those things for your good if you belong to Jesus. And so when we pray to him and saying, God, please make sure no bad things happen to me or only pick ones that will help me trust in you. Will he answer that prayer for sure? He will answer that prayer for sure. Not because we give him a good argument, because we've done good things, but because we have the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, our last point is just a summary. Every heart needs to be softened. Look at the last two verses. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Of all of the people who had hard hearts, you'd think the disciples wouldn't by that time. How many miracles did those guys see? They talked directly with Jesus. They saw so many miracles, and yet their hearts were hardened. Now, it is true that every single person who's not a Christian has a very hard heart toward God. And even if they saw all that God did, they still wouldn't love him. They still wouldn't follow him. They still wouldn't trust him. And that God gives you a soft heart as a gift for those who trust in Jesus. But you know what also is true? After you become a Christian, you're still going to wrestle with your heart being hard. The disciples did. The Bible says Paul did. Peter says we all are going to. John says... If you say this isn't true, if you say you have no sin, well, then you're definitely a liar. And you're definitely not a Christian. So we should not be surprised when trusting in Jesus is kind of hard. We shouldn't be surprised when obeying Jesus is kind of hard. What we can do is always go to him to help soften our heart. And we know that he's going to use his spirit inside of us to do that. We know that he's going to use his word to do that, the Bible. And he's also going to use circumstances. He's going to use events in our life to do that as well, which is exactly what he did for the disciples in this occasion. Dear friends, if you feel your heart getting hard, do not panic. Run to him for him to soften your heart. Tell him, pray to him. I feel like it's really hard right now. I know it's not good, and I have no excuse, but my heart is hard, and I need it to be softened. And then run to those things that he promises to use to soften hearts. Run to the gathering of God's people, the singing of God's praises, the preaching of God's word, the praying of God's word together. Run to your friend who's a Christian to help you. Run to the church members to help you. Run to your mom and dad to help you. God promises to save people who have hard hearts. And he will do that by reminding us of our Savior. He will remind us that our Savior was a truly a man, a truly a human, just like you. But he was a perfect one. And he was truly God. And where you failed, he did not. 
and he died for your sins and rose from the dead. And that God doesn't try to save people. He just does. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. That seeing how sinful we were, how hard our hearts were, how rebellious we were, you didn't just stand there looking and saying, well, that's, that's on them. Instead, you sent your son, who eternally was God, to become a human, just like us. And he lived the way we ought to have lived, just the way we needed to. With lots of needs, but just trusting you and praying to you and obeying you. And we know that where we have failed, Jesus has succeeded. And we're really glad that you accept us based on what Jesus did, not based on what we do. Thank you that we have a plea, we have confidence that has nothing to do with us and everything to do with Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that you would continue to soften our hearts, to trust that we need you for forgiveness, but also that you have provided that in Christ. Please soften our hearts as well through the good things and bad things that you pick for us. And Lord, would you soften our hearts? Help us to trust in you more. That we would trust that only good things will happen to us unless you, being smarter than us, know it would be for our benefit, that it would help us to become more like Jesus, help our hearts to become softer, and help us to hold on to the gospel until the end of our lives. Lord, we pray that you would soften us as a people. Your church here at Park City, but your church around the world, give your church, the one true church, a softer heart. And we pray that the Lord Jesus would return soon. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, let us stand together and let us respond to God's word by 